Welcome to the Creative Times Summit podcast, where each episode brings you a talk from our annual convening for thinkers, dreamers, and doers working at the intersection of art and politics. Find out more at creativetime.org. This summit podcast features award-winning investigative reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole covers racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. She was a keynote speaker at our 2015 summit, Curriculum NYC. what time of day this is. I just flew in, so I think it's afternoon now. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> um, I actually live in Bed-Stuy, so it's great to be here in my, my neck of the woods talking to you all. I'm going to start off with a story. I'm going to, I'm going to read a story that I wrote, a short story, and then we'll go from there. So the story I want to tell you today is about a young lady that I met nearly two years ago. She was a senior in high school when we met, the type of person that we journalists love to call an all-American girl. When I met her in the halls of her high school, she was a bubbly teenager who favored skinny jeans and hair that cascaded in waves down her back. And she managed perfectly that rare combination um, of being both popular and smart. Her high school schedule was filled with the toughest courses that her high school offered. She always sat in the front of the room, her bedazzled backpack bulging with textbooks and notebooks and gloss, lip gloss. And she excelled at everything that she did. She was a state champion track athlete, three years in a row, class president. The mayor chose her to sit on his youth council. And one could always find her in the center of a gaggle of girls who just wanted to be in her orbit. And unlike many a high school queen bee, she wielded her power not with clicks and barbs, but with grace and kindness, her insanely deep dimples never completely vanishing from her face. Everyone loved this girl, her teachers, her classmates, her coaches, even her younger sisters, who idolized her and worked to match their academic achievements to hers. She was a senior in high school, the homecoming queen who dated the football star the type of girl for whom we believe the doors of opportunity will fly open. Imagine this girl in your mind. Imagine her future. Can't you just see her leading the debate team on some Ivy League campus? Can you picture her landing a coveted internship at some big city firm? Now, let me show you her name. Her name is Delisha. Did the record just scratch? I want you to look at that apostrophe in her name because that apostrophe foreshadows a counter narrative, one that may already be forming in your minds. It is a giveaway, a shorthand, a justifiable subtraction for this girl's true place in the American story of equal opportunity. That apostrophe, so often perceived as a gratuitous flare of punctuation inserted by an uneducated mother, serves as a bright neon flashing light in the American mind. Just like that, the blonde, sun-kissed imagery of the all-American girl evaporates. 
For many, many Americans, Delisha's name means two things, black and poor. And I ask you, have you ever seen a girl like this with a name like this called an all-American girl ever? Oh, these names, the Lakeishas, the DeAndres, the Rashandas and the Keyshawns, sight unseen, close the hearts of mainstream America. Delisha, like hundreds of thousands of black kids across the country, spent 13 years in schools that her school board had gerrymandered to be completely poor and black. And those schools were then systematically deprived of the resources we bestow on our all-American schools. For 13 years, Delisha studied in schools that got the worst teachers and the weakest instruction. And at one point, while the whitest high school in Delisha's district had more than a dozen advanced placement courses, Delisha's high school offered none. It didn't have a newspaper or a yearbook. Kids at her school couldn't even take physics, which was required to get into the four-year colleges in her state. In <clears throat> Delisha is a smart girl. She knew that the Supreme Court had banned school segregation in 1954, but she also knew that in 13 years in public school, she had never had a single white classmate. Still, she was deeply compassionate, and so she understood that the elected officials and the white families who lived across the street from her school but refused to send their children there weren't rabid racists. So because of that, despite her circumstances, she still believed in the American dream, that if she worked really hard, it didn't matter where she came from, she'd just have as much opportunity to secure America's bounty as everyone else. A curious girl with big dreams, she anticipated going to a college where she'd finally learn with and make friends with students of different races, white students, Asian students, Latino students the types of people she'd only seen in passing at the mall or at the aisles of the Piggly Wiggly, but never had the pleasure of sharing a pillow fight with or musing about Shakespeare in a classroom. One night as we talked, she wondered if white people had movie theaters in their homes. I smiled at her thinking she was joking, but the face that peered back at me was earnest. In the bounty of America, segregation had made her world so small but she didn't know how small back then. And so when she sat in on the ACT test prep course with white kids from the integrated high school a few miles across town, she saw how many things they'd been taught in school that she knew nothing about. Her confidence was shaken, but it wasn't destroyed. Then she took the ACT. And when she went online to look at her scores, the confidence that had taken years to build dissipated, poof. Like that, it was gone. Here she was, the top student at her high school. She'd taken the toughest courses that her school offered, but her score was a 16. She took the test again and then a third time, but the score didn't budge. And while kids like her at other schools found themselves pouring through mounds of mail from all of the colleges courting them, Delisha came home each day to mailboxes that remained coldly empty. All her hard work, her leadership, her effort had mattered little because colleges didn't much care for a working class girl 
from a failing black high school who could only earn a 16 on her ACT. That's when Delisha, at the tender age of 17, came to understand that the good intentions of good people didn't matter. Only their actions did. She understood that the very people who say they value integration and who mean it when they say it, the liberals, the progressives, the New Yorkers, are in truth willing to accept the most devastating inequalities for children like her. That people who embrace integration and equality as an ideal, as a belief system, would fight tooth and nail to avoid putting their children in a school full of kids with apostrophes in their names. And these good people, and they are good people, want to believe that the modern version of separate but equal isn't anywhere as terrible as the old Jim Crow version it replaced. And it is this delusion that allows them to ignore the evidence within their sight. Today they say it's about class, not race. The segregation is about test scores, not race. It's about neighborhoods, not race. It's about school choice, not race. It's about anything but race. They insist that they really do believe that the leashes of the world are just as worthy of the same education as their kids get, even as they admit they'd never put their own children in the schools we build for the kids with apostrophes in their names. So I wrote that story, never published it. Um, thank you. I wrote that story um, about this young lady in a piece I ran in the Atlantic Magazine that I wrote last year called Segregation Now. And it was a piece examining the resegregation of American schools. And the resegregation is only really happening in the South because in most of the country, including the very city in which we sit, there never has been any real integration uh, for most of the black and Latino children. So let's just start with some facts. Because what I find out is when it comes to the history of race in this country, we have a great deal of amnesia. And even when I was trying to pitch these stories, I would hear from editors, we already know this story. We know this history. And then I'd say, OK, tell me. <laughs> Suddenly, there would be a lot of silence. Because we think we know. We think that we had segregation, and the Supreme Court passed Brown v. Board, and suddenly, we woke up in this country and realized that what we had been doing was wrong. We fixed it. It was hard. We had some busing incidents. But overall, you know, it was OK. But the truth is, most kids, black kids in this country, have never experienced integration in schools. When you look at this figure, black children have always been about 13% of the population of this country. Yet not even at the height of school desegregation were even half of black kids attending majority white schools. That's, that's telling you a lot about how far we have and haven't come. The peak of school desegregation in this country was actually 1988. And since 1988, we've been going steadily backwards. Then we have Latino students. Latino students were, for much of the history of this country, fairly integrated in most parts of the country. But as they have increased in population, 
many Latinos in many communities are now experiencing the same levels and sometimes even higher levels of segregation as black students. And in New York City, black and Latino students tend to be segregated together, away from white and Asian students and away from opportunity. So this was the, these were the headlines last year that came out when a new report on school segregation in the country was released. Can anyone in this room just call out what would be the most segregated school district in the country? Thank you. I saw these headlines over and over. New York was atop the list. And these headlines were shocked. But this has been the truth now for many, many long years. And in fact, the most segregated schools in the country have not been in the South since the 1970s. So how does that myth prevail that it is the South that's backwards and it is we who are progressive when in fact, when the South was forced to fix it by the courts, it did, at least better than anywhere else. These are pictures of two classrooms. The one on the right is Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is where Delisha goes to school. The one on the left is in the Bronx. And one would not be able to tell the difference, even though we would like to think of Alabama as this really backwards place where George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door. These are the list of the most segregated states in the country for black and Latino students. What you'll notice is this is not a conservative problem. This is a problem of the entire country, but it's also a problem of some of the most progressive and blue voting city, states and cities in America. New York, Illinois, Michigan, Maryland, New Jersey. You have to get down to number six before you see a southern state, and that's Mississippi. That is not something for which we should be proud. New York not only has the most segregated city, but we are second in the nation in terms of apartheid schools. These are schools where only 1% or fewer of the students are white. I want that to, to sink in because the researchers use the word apartheid schools intentionally. Apartheid schools don't just mean an absence of white students. We know that in this country, we have never disentangled race from resources, race from opportunity, race from quality instruction. And then I like to show this slide, because I think what we also think is that the neoplasticism that we have embraced today is somehow less harmful than in the past. That because there's no laws requiring it, because we don't have crosses being burned in yards, that somehow this is not a problem for us when we're separating black and Latino kids from white kids. And even worse now is black and Latino kids who are impoverished. So we're seeing concentrations of both poverty and race. And what we know is that it looks no different today than it did before it was illegal. These kids are still being deprived of the same quality of teachers, the same quality of instruction. They're far less likely to have all of the classes that we say the kids need to, to compete to get into college. Physics, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, advanced placement courses. You can pick a city, and if that high school has a lot of black and Latino kids in it, it is less likely to offer any of those things. It is less likely to have a teacher who is certified teaching those courses. It is less likely to have newspaper or yearbook, just like Delisha's high school. So this separation is not benign. And you can't believe that people would choose, if they had choice, to put their children in schools where their kids were being deprived of the same education that other kids receive. 
But it's also not just about the education in the classroom. And I think that this is the most critical thing, that people who vie to get their kids into good schools, into integrated schools, understand. The schools are not about a test score. Schools are about opportunities for your life. They are the fundamental equalizer of our democracy, or they can fundamentally entrench the disparities of our democracy. And so what we know is that kids who go to segregated schools end up leaving a segregated life. They get trapped. They get trapped in every way. They get trapped in terms of income. They're more likely to go to jail. They don't even live as long. So we are literally harming our children by allowing the segregation to continue. So what do I mean when I say it's not them, it's us? Uh, a few months ago, I ran a piece on Michael Brown's high school in Normandy, Missouri. It was on This American Life. And that piece was looking at the Black Lives Matter and this focus um, nationally of the media on police killings, which of course are incredibly important. But I asked the question, why, as Michael Brown's mother was standing in front of police tape with her child's dead bodies behind her, why was she talking about schools? Why was she talking about his education? I can't imagine, I have a five-year-old, I can't imagine what that would feel like to lose your child and then to lose your child in that way. And she was talking about schools. So I went to Missouri to find out what was it about Michael Brown schools that would have his mother talking about that thing while her child lay dead on the ground behind her. And what I found out was that Michael Brown attended the most segregated and the poorest school district in his state. That of 520 school districts, his school district had placed dead last in the state accreditation. Out of 140 points on the accreditation exam, his school district earned 10. If that doesn't make you angry, or if we think that that is acceptable, then we have a lot of soul searching to do. 10 points. I half jokingly said it's like when you, you know, they say you get points on the SAT just for putting your name. I don't understand how a school district still operates, but they do. And that school district is still serving those kids. So when we look up and we look at what is the likelihood that a black child will be killed by the police versus what is the likelihood that a black child will be forced to go to a segregated, inferior school district that will make it virtually impossible for that child to be successful, the harm is very clear. And then I say, why is it it's not them, it's us? Because during that This American Life piece, there is a town hall meeting. And in that town hall meeting, you have a bunch of parents. And they are in the white school district that are now going to have to take the black kids from Michael Brown's school district. Because Michael Brown's district finally got so bad after 20 years of failing black kids. It got so bad that it was stripped of its accreditation. And that triggered a law that allowed the kids from that district to go to a nearby white district. And in that town hall meeting, you heard the most ugly things that you could ever hear people say about someone else's children, about anyone's children. And over and over as I've walked through New York and people realize that I'm the reporter who did that piece, I've heard people say, oh my god, I can't believe those people. I can't believe that they would say those things or they would act that way. And that's when I say it's not them. It's all of us. 
It's not that problem over there. We can look to what's happening in Brooklyn right now, in Manhattan right now, PS 307 and PS 8. You can look at what's happening with PS 199 and 191 in Manhattan. And the things that are being said sound just like those meetings. So we're not talking about, again, rabid racists. We're not talking about people who don't profess that they believe in equality. We're talking about people who can find any excuse when it comes to their own kid to value their kid's education over everyone's, everyone else's. And to somehow believe that those kids are deserving, or they don't want better, or they don't deserve better. So it's not them. It's all of us. But the good part, because I'm told, though I usually tend to end these speeches on a very downer note, because I'm an investigative reporter, and I always look at the bad side of things, um, that there should be some inspiration out of this. So I will say that the good thing is that the solution lies not with them, but with us. Because we can decide. When I first started doing long-term investigations into school segregation two and a half years ago, I had these moments of panic. Because I spent a year on a story that I was sure no one would read and no one would talk about. Because segregation has been a dead issue. No one has wanted to discuss it. We've accepted it and we've moved on. But that's changing. And we're seeing people talking about it again. And we're seeing people challenging it. And I'm so proud of students I'm seeing in the Bronx who are actually started organizations to challenge the segregation that they're being forced into. And you're seeing people asking the mayor and the school's chancellor, what are you going to do about this? So the positive side is the solutions are us. And we can try all of these other solutions. And I've spent 10 years looking at every new magical thing that is going to turn around segregation. And I can also tell you that I spent 10 years finding that none of them really work. But we know the one thing that does. And where we tried it, it has worked. When you put black and brown kids in the same classrooms with white kids, they don't become magically smarter. But magically, they get the same education that white kids are getting. That's what it's always been about. If you go all the way back and trace the history of Brown, it has been that thing, the understanding that if you want the power, you have to be next to the power, period. You have to be able to sit in those same classrooms. You have to have the fates of our community intertwined. Because if my kid's in that school, you best be sure I'm not going to allow the school to be run down to the ground. But if my kid's never going to have to go in that school, I don't care what happens to that school. So I think this is where we have the power. We have the power to do something differently, to live our values when we're actually confronted with them in our own lives, instead of just talking about our values when it makes us feel good. Those are two very different things. And they're not easy to do. My husband and I made a decision with our own daughter to enroll her in one of those segregated high poverty schools that everyone is afraid of. Because we were not going to be the people who care about those kids as long as they're over there. Because our daughter is, those, is one of those kids. So I'm going to leave you. I know we're running late, so I'm sure everyone will be happy that I'll cut this a little short. I'm going to leave you with um, two things. 
Julian Bond, an icon of the civil rights movement who recently passed. He said, if you want to talk about violence, it's, it's sending a child to school for 12 years and that child gets six years of an education. That's violence. We don't look at this as what we're doing to kids as we sit in the, one of the most segregated pockets of one of the most segregated cities in a segregated school that many of us has probably have never been in. We don't think about that type of violence when you promise kids that this is the way that you get out and then you stymie there every chance within the walls of a school that their parents are paying tax dollars for too. And the other thing that I will leave you with is this question that, uh, that a local politician asked during one of these, these uh, public hearings over the school integration battle happening in Brooklyn right now. It was a very simple question, and I thought it was the most powerful question. It's if those schools are not good enough for your kids, are they good enough for anybody's kids? Thank you. Lead support for this podcast comes from the Trust for Mutual Understanding, Blum Media International, and the Blum Family Foundation. Additional creative time support is provided by the Ford Foundation, Lambent Foundation, Toby Devin Lewis, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, as well as Creative Time's generous trustees and individual donors. Since 1972, Creative Time has worked with artists to contribute to the dialogues, debates, and dreams of our times. To show your support for Creative Time, please visit creativetime.org slash join.